one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On this episode, I meet two very different authors. The first is Sophie Hagen, a fat acceptance campaigner who has a lot to say about the way we treat bigger people in the world. And I'm in that bracket myself, so I found it a fascinating conversation and I know you will too. Also coming up, Dublin crime writer Jane Casey talked to me about her new novel Cruel Acts and why there are so many dead women in her books. But first, Circa Pollock is the author of the weekly Irish Times series New to the Parish, which explores the lives of immigrants to this country. She's also been doing some excellent journalism, telling the stories of undocumented Irish people. She is also, as well as that, watching Love Island, which I wouldn't have necessarily expected. But Circa, before we get on to Tommy and Maura from Longford and all the rest of them, tell us about the research released this week about the undocumented Irish. This report came out a couple of days ago from the Migrant Rights Centre of Ireland, which is looking into undocumented young people in Ireland. So these are the children of people who came here on visas, usually study or work, their visas expired, and for whatever reason they choose to stay on, the vast majority of them continue working. And their children grow up in the country without any legal status. And this is not the children's fault, obviously, because it's it's from decisions that their parents made. But they are now essentially Irish kids uh, who've grown up here for most of their lives, but don't have the same rights because of the choices that their parents made. And they have no idea, most of them, until they reach Leaving Cert, that there's any problem. So a lot of them come here when they're five, six, seven years of age. They go through the entire school system and suddenly they reach Leaving Cert year and they are told or they realise that they can't go on to third level because they're not entitled to, to well, the non-fees system. They'd have to be international students. And also there's the huge, huge risk of putting themselves out there as undocumented. So how many of these kids are there? Estimates are two to 3,000 um, and the research that came out this week shows that 7 out of 10 of these were actually born in Ireland. So they have spent their whole lives here. Um, but there needs to be, they're hoping to, the MRCI are hoping to do updated research this year because there needs to be updated data as to how many there are. There's an estimated twenty to 26,000 people in the island, on the island of Ireland who are currently uh, undocumented. And particularly in relation to the young people, is there any will, do you think, politically to try and sort out their situations? Because it just seems really unfair. It's kind of a, often the forgotten cause because people talk a lot about direct provision. They talk a lot about asylum seekers. People don't consider undocumented as a problem here. It was very much in the news when Donald Trump came into power because he ended Barack Obama's Dreamers program or the DACA program, which basically provided a pathway for children in this exact situation who had come as undocumented children to continue their education and work. And this was removed by Donald Trump. And there was a lot huge criticism 
uh, towards the American government for doing this. But then you look at Ireland, we have no programme in place. We have nothing. And every year on St. Patrick's Day, we have huge campaigns and huge discussions around the undocumented Irish in the States. And I listen, I 100% support the regularisation of the undocumented Irish. But it's hugely hypocritical to talk about the Irish in the States and then just not address the issue that's happening right here in our country. Now, the government did introduce a very short scheme last year, which was to allow students whose uh, visa had run out to reapply and be considered for regularisation. It was a very short time period and the they only had three months to apply. A lot of people didn't find out about it until the last second. So it's actually not clear yet how many people successfully regularised themselves through that from the MRCI they don't know many people who did So we need to be more aware of it and you spoke to one young woman who was in exactly that situation called Rashmi tell us about her She was lovely she's 24 years old now she came here when she was 8 from Sri Lanka with her parents who came here for work and she's gone through the whole school system and when she she talks about when she reached transition year, that's when she re- realised something was different because she couldn't go on any school trips. And then she reached leaving cert and applied with her CAO, for her CEO with all her friends, but couldn't continue on. So she's kind of been in this limbo for six years now. She recently reapplied to UCD and DCU to study law. She wants to be a lawyer and she's hoping that somehow she'll find some, either the government will introduce a scheme for someone like her or someone will be able to support her. But as it stands, she's not able to go to university. And is there any sense that the government will introduce some kind of scheme like the Dreamers? I know you mentioned the small one that was introduced, but is there that political will? or is it, I know you said it's not a popular cause. It's not something a lot of people talk about, I suppose, which is great that you're doing this work. At present, no, it's not something that many uh, TDs or senators are talking about. There's a few, there's a few exceptions. But the undocumented cause, because it affects a relatively small number of young people, I mean, 2,000 to 3,000 people is still a lot of people, but um, it doesn't get the same coverage as, for instance, asylum seekers and refugees. Um, people wouldn't have the same awareness of it. Most people, I say don't even know there's undocumented people here in Ireland. So I have not seen great political will. Apart from that scheme that was introduced that was hugely that was very temporary. And mm. um, there haven't been any mumblings about anything more extended and particularly around young people because this is really about young people more than anything, allowing them to continue beyond school. But you're going to keep a sort of watching brief on this because mm. it's something that you've been doing work on for quite a while. Yeah, for a few years now and I'd be interested to see and hope that it'll progress further. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about, uh, Circa, is something nothing to do with that. And actually, a lot of people might be surprised that you're someone who, you know, you deal with such quite a lot of serious topics. You know, you run new to the parish and talk about immigration. But you've been watching Love Island for the first time. So tell me how you square that uh, circle. <laughs> I'd never watched it before this summer. The first episode I ever saw was when my boyfriend's niece, who's a teenager, was watching it last summer. And I clued in for about 10 minutes and I thought, oh, God, I can't do this. Yeah. But... Um, I actually blame my boyfriend. He convinced me to watch one episode this summer. He'd never watched it either. We're both, he's going through a very heavy work period at the moment and my work as well can be quite mentally draining and he said it's the perfect antidote. You go home and you don't have to use your brain at all. And that's exactly what it does. (laughs) It's an hour of, and to be fair, I do wind it forward sometimes if I'm watching my laptop because it can get very boring. (laughs) But uh, certain parts are exciting, I have to admit it. Okay, well, Cathy Sheridan this week in the Irish Times has been very scathing about it because there's this whole thing about more from Longford and toxic masculinity and she's being hailed by people like Catelyn Moran as a really great feminist and somebody who younger women can look up to for the way that she's called out the boys for their 
bad behaviour. But Cathy says you can't look at something as superficial as Love Island and get any lessons from it. Are you with Cathy on this? I'm with Cathy on that. <laughs> it's not about life lessons. It's a hugely superficial show. They only hire the most beautiful people with the most beautiful bodies. That's one thing I keep noticing. These men, I'm like, I don't. I've never met a man who looks <laughs> like that. So I, they've obviously you have got, a lived sir. Never mind. Sorry, point out. But it's 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 not an any way representative of the general population. You really have to approach it as pure and simple entertainment. And I, 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 I saw that episode where Maura uh, talked back to your man and said, listen, you cannot speak to me that way. And I'm glad she did because he shouldn't have spoken in that way. But she's not suddenly some feminist icon. I mean, I would hope that a woman of her age, I think she's in her mid-twenties, I would hope that she would know straight away not to accept that kind of behaviour. Yeah, but at the same time, if you think of younger women watching it, like in their teens, watching someone like her, uh, you know, standing up for herself when, you know, a man is making an assumption about her in terms of her sexuality and what she might or might not do, that they might go, right, next time I'm, you know, talked down to like that or, or verbally abused like that, I'm going to stand up for myself. So is there not something, is it maybe a generational thing? Maybe you or I or Cathy have nothing to learn, but maybe there are is an audience there that are watching that can learn things from it. Maybe, perhaps, maybe I'm assuming that younger people are far more aware of the Me Too movement than um, than the other generations are. I'm not sure, but um, perhaps they're learning something. I'd be more worried about the the, the visual takeaway that the, the kind of I need to look a certain way. This whole culture now of of puffed up lips and kind of surgery to your bum and to your boobs that has only really taken off in Ireland properly in the last few years. I'd be worried that it's setting standards that are totally unrealistic. And for men as well, for young guys watching it, these guys are not, they're, they look like Greek gods. As I said, no one looks like well. this. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, that, that is definitely true. But apart from all that, it's the candy floss for the brain aspect that is, is doing it for you. I'd highly recommend it for anyone who wants to just unwind. On a, not on a beautiful day like today, you get outside, <laughs> but when the weather's been crap, like it was for most of June, you just watch it and the brain shuts off. Okay, well, Circuit Park, enjoy it tonight and all the rest of the night. I think it's lasting till the end of July. And thank you very much for coming in. Thanks, Rashi. Well, thank you very much, Circa. Now, Sophie Hagen is a London-based Danish comedian and fat acceptance campaigner who has toured her comedy shows and hosted a number of podcasts. She also has a brilliant book out, which I would urge you all to read, whether you are fat yourself, we are reclaiming that word here on the Women's Podcast, or whether you are not fat at all. The book is called Happy Fat, Taking Up Space in a World That Wants to Shrink You. Sophie came in and talked to me about fat phobia, about her new clothing range of jumpsuits for bigger women and about why she's on a mission to change the way people talk to and about fat people. Sophie, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. I have to ask you first of all about the word fat because as someone who is fat, um, it's something that's been used against me all my life to put me down and make me feel bad. And this thing of reclaiming that word and not um, seeing it as as a bad um, descriptor is is difficult for some people. It's definitely difficult, and it's also you can't just do it with the word. You have to do it with the entire <laughs> concept of being fat. You know, being fat has to not be something bad before you can take back the word. Like even even yesterday, I had a I had a woman say to me that she said, "Oh, where do you find your jumpsuits?" And I said, "Oh, on, on ASOS." And she said, oh, but there are just so many pages to go through. I was like, I've never had that problem in my life. (laughs) And I said, oh, hey, you should try getting fat because then there won't be that many. (laughs) And then she just, she had this horrified look on her face. She was like, don't, don't. 
oh, no, no, don't say that about yourself. And I was like, what have I said? You know, I've just said I'm, we can both see it. You know, it's very much a fact. You know, my, my stomach is large. There's, my body is bigger. It's, you know, why are we pretending it's not true? Why are we pretending mm. I'm not fat? You know, there's no, just if I used another word like plump or <laughs> big boned or voluptuous or whatever else they want to call it. You know, that doesn't take away the fact that I wear a size 28. Mm. I suppose it's just that, like I said, that people use that word as such a, a mean word. And, and it's kind of it does take time to change that thinking, um, Definitely. especially in ourselves. I was on a train uh, a couple of weeks ago and there was this man, an alarm went off. And he was, was this really unfunny man who'd been annoying people all the way through the journey mm. in a loud voice. He started saying, oh, we're all going to die. Women, come and oh. kiss me. Line up. Women, come and kiss me. Jesus. Except except you chubsters, you can stay where you are, he said, oh, as I sat there. Right, the thing. And the thing is, it's still used as a way to make sure that we know that we're not quite the right kind of human or the right kind of people in the world. Yeah, we don't count. You know, it's there's a, a, a good example of just how fat women don't count as women. Basically, there's the, you know, that American sitcom Big Bang Theory. There's a joke in that where one of the characters uh, can't speak to women. And it's this whole thing. Every time he enters a room and there's a woman, he just, he goes mute. And then I started noticing that the fat characters he could talk to quite easily. And no one ever mentioned it. No one ever said, oh, why can you talk to her? It was just so accepted that, oh, of course you can talk to them because they don't count. You know, they just don't count as women. And then soon you realize that mostly when people say women, they mean women they could sleep with. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. women they want to sleep with, women they see as sexual or romantic, you know, uh, options. And we're very often not that. Yeah, but it's interesting because um, fat people, a lot of them, a lot of us have partners and have children. Yeah. So if somebody wants to sleep with us. So it's not oh, completely. We've definitely all had sex. But yeah. also sometimes you have sex and the person is like, oh, could you, um, yeah, you know, maybe don't, let's not tell our friends. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've had, I've had sex with quite a few Danish comedians who then following that would go on stage or on podcasts and joke around about how you you should never have sex with a fat woman, oh, you know? And you're just kind of in the audience or backstage going, do you not remember? Like, what is, what are you pretending? Are you pretending that that wasn't, you know, like you begged me to visit you again? You know, you, you <laughs> I turned you down 12 times before I finally said yes, you know? And then you're on stage going, ew, I would never. You're like, yeah, who are you fooling and why? Mm. So what we're kind of talking, and what we will talk about more is about fat acceptance. In a way, fat liberation is another a phrase, because I know you have some issues mm. with the whole body positivity uh, mm. describer of things. But um, you're, and also that, that you are basically telling people that being happy and fat is an option, because we're often told that you can't possibly be, and we're told that's not... That's not, you can't be both of those things. You can't be fat and happy, but you you firmly believe that that is possible. Um, but your book is brilliant. It's called Happy Fat, Taking Up Space in a World That Wants to Shrink You. And you talk about growing up as a fat child um, and the kind of constant uh, diet thing and food as love and food as punishment. Tell us a bit about your own experiences growing up. Yeah, I, I was eight years old when a school nurse told um, told my mother that I was dangerously obese or like morbidly obese which is ridiculous for many many reasons first of all it was ridiculous because I wasn't you know when you see pictures of me I was just a child like a normal 
child, you know, like children are not meant to be skinny and have thigh gaps, you know? So, but, you know, there was this whole obesity epidemic, ugh, awfulness. So I started dieting and I didn't stop till I was 22. And it was just from the very beginning, I got a very unhealthy, psychologically, well, and physically unhealthy relationship with food because food was, there were good foods and bad foods and foods had to be restricted. And whatever I wanted to eat was bad and wrong and made me a, you know, a bad person. And all the things that I didn't want to eat were good and were, you know, there was so much morality around it, you know, and so much shame and guilt around, you know, like I remember spending so much energy thinking about the foods I couldn't have. And, you know, there was the feeling of, you know, when a diet fails, which they always do, that's why they work, you know, that's why they work as a business. That's why they make so much money off it because 98% of diets fail. And that's just, that's just true. And so whenever they would fail, which they always would, oh, I would feel like the worst person. You know, it would just be like my life was over. What's the point of anything? I'm so bad at this. I'm useless. I'm worthless. I'll never be pretty. I'll never, you know. And then all of that self-hatred then makes you go, right, I need to find a new diet. Mm. One where I, where, where I don't fail. Because you think you fail. You don't think the diet fails. And that was just a circle through what 14 years of my life or something yeah and how did you get yourself out of that circle um I (laughs) first I started therapy which worked um, Mm -hmm. because I reached a point where it was just too much and I sort of lost I lost myself quite a lot and I lost the I I know it sounds really dark I, I lost the will to really live um not be alive but live you know I just didn't what what's the point you know I'm fat so what's the point uh, so I started therapy first, and but I didn't, still didn't really know about. Uh, she just said to me, you know, you have an eating disorder, you have to stop dieting. And then in my head, I thought, right, okay, but eventually, yeah. know, eventually, I'll still find a way to get thin. And then I learned about fat acceptance, fat liberation. I learned about the fat liberation movement, and I someone just taught me about capitalism and feminism and how. You know, the patriarchy is using diets to control women and to to make us feel not good enough and not valid. And, you know, then we're focused on that instead of focusing on, you know, fighting the patriarchy. It's very smart, actually, from, mm. from their side. And I just started looking into it. And all I basically needed to be told was, hey, it's not a fact that fat equals bad. Something that I believed as a fact my entire life actually isn't a fact. It's someone's opinion. And if it's someone's opinion, you don't have to believe it. You don't have to live according to it. It is possible to believe that you are worthy it's, and attractive and a good person. And then you are because it's all opinion. So why not change your opinion and then be happy? You know, the word liberation is good because even as you're speaking there, it feels very liberating. And and did it feel like that for you? Did it feel like, I mean, sorry to use the phrase, a weight off or a load off, but did it feel like that, you know, that somehow you were, you were, you know, easier in yourself and easier on yourself? I'm not saying overnight, but did did it have that cumulative effect the more you learned about that? It's a strange thing to, to describe because yes, in a way, but it was, there was still all the, blame there was still the anger the sadness was still there but it wasn't directed at me anymore before it was I am bad I am horrible I'm unattractive I'm unworthy and then it became 
oh my God, I'm, I'm being treated very badly. I'm being discriminated against. All the bad things that has happened that I thought was because of me is actually someone doing something against me that feels violent. You know, it's an industry, it's a system, it's corporations. It's, you know, you read the diets, the diet books and you watch the, you know, the TV shows and you, you know, you'd sign up for all of these weight loss companies and groups and you think that they want something good for you. You know, they, you just assume that they want to help you lose weight so you can be happy when actually they want to make money. And they want you to feel bad about yourself so that you, so that they can make more money. So I just kind of felt quite exploited. And I felt kind of, I felt like apologizing to myself for having spent 14 years, <laughs> you know, just arguing with myself and yelling at myself and telling myself horrible things when actually that was never necessary because it wasn't true. So that's the kind of corporate side, but you're also very interesting on the personal individual side of, I suppose, what's called, what is fat phobia? Because a lot of the time, even as you're talking, I know some people listening to you will be thinking, well, it's really unhealthy to be fat and that girl <laughs> needs to sort herself out and fat people can't go around thinking they're worthy because they're not because, you know, they do need to lose weight and, and they shouldn't, you know, they're putting a drain on the health services and blah, 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 okay. blah. Yeah. But I'd really like you to address that because I think not only people who are aren't fat but also some fat people we think that about ourselves and we feel mm-hmm. like you know oh god we're, we're putting health problems like but you have very good answers to this which have actually been very helpful to me so if you wouldn't mind addressing that uh, person in the corner saying guys you just need to lose weight and get yourself healthy because this is really wrong yeah well so that person first of all uh, get get out of my life <laughs> like, get out of my health like just absolutely 100% let people do whatever they want to do that is it the, the idea that we have any say in how other people live their lives is so ridiculous and so intrusive. And, you know, like I, I don't go up to anyone in the street and go, oh, what did, what did you have for breakfast? You know, what, have you ever done drugs? Have you ever uh, drank alcohol? Have you ever gone bungee jumping? Have you ever run a marathon? Like marathons are, are unhealthy. And that's not me saying that people shouldn't do marathons. Do you. You do whatever you need to do. But you can't look at someone and see if they're healthy or not. I can't look, you know, I have lots of thin friends that I know for a fact are unhealthy. I don't judge that. There's nothing wrong with that. They can do whatever they want, but they do not get the same amount. They get no, they get no harassment <laughs> based on how their diet being based on McDonald's and alcohol, you know. And oh, So what's know, the difference then? Why do fat people get that? Why, why are we looked at and judged? Because people don't care. People don't care about health. People, they think they do. They've, they've been told they do, but they don't. People care about you being fat. That's all they care about. You know, you don't see someone who's like sneezing with a cold on the train and then go up to them and be like, oh, you're unworthy. You should really sort yourself out. You, should, you know, that's just not, oh, did you not wear a warm jacket? Oh, you're, you're disgusting. You know, that just doesn't happen because people, it's the fatness that annoys people because since these 70s, the argument has been debunked. This is not even this is the millionth time that someone like me disputes the whole health argument, and I will con- we will continue to have to do that because people just don't want to accept it because it's not about the health; it's about it's about hating 
sadness. Uh, so we need um, to talk about that then. We need to talk about actual, you know, we talk about transphobia these days, these days mm. which is great. We talk about homophobia. But mm. this is what you're calling is fat phobia. So it's when we look at yeah. somebody who's not the, you know, conventional shape that we think people should be for whatever reason mm. over, you know, decades and centuries of uh, socialization. And we actually think that that person is a less than because of their shape. And that's mm. fat phobia and that's hating fat people. And do you think we people need to just acknowledge that more? And how do they do that? And, and what do they do when they realize that? Uh, I mean, I for me, it helped doing some reading, doing some looking into it. I, sometimes, you know what? The answer is shutting up. Sometimes you need to shut up. And, not, and I don't mean that in a malicious way. I just mean it as, you know, when I was learning about all of this, in the same way as when I was learning about transphobia, homophobia, racism, sexism, for a long time, I just shut my mouth a bit, mm-hmm. and then I did some reading, and I made sure I followed. And it doesn't have to be thick academic books, although they're also great. It can just be, you know, following people on Instagram or Twitter who know what they're talking about. And my, my whole thing, what really sort of sometimes annoys me a bit, is that we look at the anti-racism, anti-transphobia, anti-fatphobia, etc. movement as a bunch of people with a bunch of opinions. And it's not. Every single thing we say is based on science and facts. And there's loads of stuff about how, for example, fat isn't actually definitely unhealthy. There's some correlation stuff between fatness and and lack of health, which can be uh, described in other ways and can be explained in other ways that are way more likely than than the fact that it has to do with fat. So everything we say is not based on me going, oh, but I couldn't lose weight. So now I've just decided that people should stop being mean to me it's about me knowing that it's way 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 more unhealthy for me and all fat people that people shame us and discriminate against us and think of us as lesser people because that is stressful and stress is a big killer so everything we say is based on facts and i think people it will really benefit people to put more fatness into their lives you know to follow fat people on instagram and twitter read the books just shut up for a bit and maybe think about maybe maybe everything you were taught wasn't actually the truth in the same way as we challenged, you know, the sexist ideas we had. Yeah. And we still do. I mean, I think you talk so much sense as someone who I can identify with everything you're saying. I mean, overtly, you know, I've been on my bike cycling around being called fat bitch. I've been, Mm. you know, from a kid, been afraid to walk to the shops because I wasn't exactly the size of everyone else. And knowing that the lads who were gathered around the school gate would would say something Mm. to me. So actually, you know, charging my roots depending on where I would go because I didn't want to be. So that's the really overt side of fat phobia, right? Which we see and Mm. hear all the time and we see it on Twitter. But it's interesting and you talk about it in your book and maybe you could expand on it a bit more. There's also kind of fat phobia that comes in the um, well-meaning way. Like I'm often, people will often say to you, oh, you have a really pretty face or when Mm -hmm. I would get makeup done, you know, your eyelashes are really long or, you know, you (laughs) you can tell that people are telling you things because they're basically trying to say to you, don't worry that you're a fat cow. You've got this mm. other thing and I'm going to pretend not to see the, the fatness and it's funny because mm. some people might think no that's just a compliment stop overthinking it but actually mm-hmm. you made me question those things a little bit in your book yeah it's basically would you would you say would you say this in this way to a thin person and often they wouldn't it's 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 in their tones and I often get people saying oh that's not a thing but you kind of have to have lived in a fat body to be able to recognize the specific tone in people's voices or the way they look at you or it's just being, you know, you know, men will come up and they'll be flirtatious, but they'll say, you know, you know what? I actually think 
you're quite pretty. <laughs> you go, why are you Ugh. saying it as if you're like a unicorn? <laughs> like, I actually, actually have convinced myself to do this. And you're like, it's, it's basically it's because it's implicit in everything we say that fat is bad. And it's so implicit that we don't even question it. We don't even, you know, like I can talk to people about this. You know, I've been in conversations not too dissimilar to this one where the other person has then suddenly said, oh, yeah, someone said to me that I was fat. I'm like, oh, but that within that sentiment, you're saying that it is a bad thing, you know? And it's like even people with, it's so ingrained in us that that is a bad thing, but you wouldn't say, oh, someone said to me that I had brown hair. That wouldn't make any sense. We'd be like, yeah, you do. What's the problem? <laughs> but, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the tone in people's voices where you go, well, fat is just bad, and we've all just accepted that, which is so scary. Because you're trying to make it, I mean, this goes on to the fact that you're trying to make fat a neutral word, word which it isn't at the moment, and it hasn't been mm. for such a long time. But you're saying it is. It's just a, a word that says what somebody is, like somebody has blue eyes or somebody mm. uh, is wearing a red dress, and that it doesn't have to come loaded with, like you talk about, the shame and the judgment mm. that it does. I was playing a game once, um, and it was like a little parlour game, and it was about kind of choices in life and dilemmas. And one of the things was, would you rather be have your leg amputated or would you rather be fat and mm. I was sitting there and, one, and the people said they'd rather have their leg cut off yeah and <laughs> it's like, there's loads of studies there's loads of studies that actually show, and it's basically everyone everyone answers amputation people answer uh, having 10 years taken off their life people would rather be blind deaf they would rather have painful acne their entire life like there's an actual list of people who like studies have been shown that that is exactly what people answer people would basically rather die than be fat <sighs> Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm actually a quite happy person. I have to say. I mean, it, I, the things that have made me sad about being fat all my life haven't been coming from me. They've come from outside. And you know, yeah. one of the things we're talking about health is the fact that you know studies show that doctors, nurses, people in the health services who are supposed to care about you know, oh, you're you know, you're you're too fat and you should lose weight and that that'll make you healthier. It's their attitude towards fat people is so awful and fat phobic that it, oh, it's yeah. damaging yeah. so damaging to people's mental health and you know so it's it's kind of hip, totally hypocritical you pretend to care about people's health meanwhile mm. shaming and bullying them at the same yeah, time definitely. and it's also I had such a last week I had I suddenly had troubles breathing and I got really really scared because, because I've been, I'm being told every single day you're going to die soon you're going to die soon from all these trolls on the internet are like you're going to die heart disease you're going to die you're going to die so, of course, when I start, like, finding how to breathe, I'm like, oh, God, are they right? This is going to be so embarrassing. It's going to be a PR nightmare, right? <laughs> but also, I was scared. I haven't been to my new doctor yet. And I thought, oh, no, you know, what are they going to say? Because, like, every single time I've been to the doctor, they've been like, oh, you know, lose weight, weigh yourself. And I've been there with, you know, my finger hurt. And they've been, oh, you should lose weight as if it had anything to do with anything. So I was really scared. And I postponed my doctor's visit for a long time. And then eventually I did go... I was so scared. It made the breathing thing worse because I was so scared. And she checked up on everything. And I am perfect. <laughs> like my heart is perfect. My lungs are perfect. The perfect uh, blood pressure, uh, oxygen levels, everything was just ideal. And then she said, but are you stressed? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, all the time. <laughs> Loads of anxiety. She said, well, then that's why. And I was like, are you sure it's not heart disease or like, of diabetes or something and she was like no your body is functioning ex like absolutely magnificently but you may want to cut down on the stress and 
I just felt so like I was just laughing and within a day the thing went away because I stopped being worried but you know it's so funny when you go oh yeah of course that's the right thing to say is you know, and if you're being screamed at every single time you leave the house and if you are being told on a daily basis that you're going to die and you know all the little extra things like I'm going to go on a plane I can't fit into the seat you know I'm, I'm coming to Dublin and July and oh, I great. the ferry. It's going to take me like ten hours to get <laughs> to Dublin, but I'm taking the ferry because I I just can't deal with the. Will I be able to fit into the seat of the bloody plane? So the, all these tiny little stress things are just they add to your. They take away the years of your life. Mm. They make you sick, and you can see that in other uh, oppressed groups of people. You know, it's the same within uh, people who, who experience racism and transphobia, homophobia. They develop the same illnesses that people apply to fat people because they also live on a daily basis being scared and, mm. you know, discriminated against. Now, there is this body positivity movement. Um, we've all used, well, some of us use the hashtag and it's around the place. And there's, you're not really um, into that, this idea that we should all be going around saying, oh, we're so beautiful and wonderful. And that you have a different take on, on that. Well, so the difference between them and us is basically body positivity is about you learning to love your body. And fat liberation is about you never learning to hate it in the first place. Mm. So body positivity is a, is a Band-Aid on a wound, which we also need because we've all been broken by the system. So that's fine. And that can exist over there. It's problematic in terms of we don't all, no one can be happy all the time. No one can be positive about their bodies all the time. And now a lot of people are feeling bad about not feeling good about their bodies. And that's so complex and annoying. But fat liberation is about going back to the source of this. You know, there's studies that show that kids down to the age of three find that they're too fat, which is ridiculous, having a three-year-old on a diet, right? So this is about that child never learning that in the first place. Because then we just have, whatever, how long it takes, 10, 15, 20, 30 years before a person discovers that there's a movement that can save them from this bad feeling. And instead, making sure that these corporations, these adverts, this system, never teaches anyone to hate themselves. Because we're not born hating ourselves. When you look at a tiny baby, you've seen a baby discover its own foot. It's amazing. This baby is like, oh my God, my foot is incredible and looks so happy. And that's how we all should feel all the time. Like, oh my God, look at my body. It carries me everywhere. It's soft. It's squishy. It's you know, it's that's how we should all feel. Yeah. You get a lot of um, abuse. I've seen it. I, I watch your Twitter thread. And by the way, just thanks for all your work, because, you know, you're putting your he- head up above the parapet. And I know it's your way of life now, but it's still not without its, you know, you, there's things happen to you because of it. Uh, mm. Do you see, though, I mean, I'm trying to I, I want there to be a hopeful note. I've, I have to believe that with all of you, there's lots of people writing books and talking about this and really interrogating fat phobia, which I think is what needs to be dismantled in order for things to be better. Mm. Really, that's the that's the biggest thing. Um, do you do you see it changing? Do you think people are getting the message? Because it is depressing when you think about the fact that we've been talking about this for you know decades now. This is yeah. not a new thing. Like you aren't reinventing the wheel, are you? You're just saying it in maybe in a bit more funny way because you're a stand up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm, everything I've said has, in theory, been said before by much cleverer people than me, and, uh, and ages ago as well. The first fat liberation people were in the beginning of the seventies, late sixties. Uh, I, I do think it is changing. It's difficult to say because, as we can see in the world right now, things are going very much in the opposite direction. But I think fat phobia, particularly. 
I think our hope lies in people who the, the difficulty with fatness is that there are so many people who are on the right side of history who still don't get it. You know, you'll see very famous left-wing feminist, self-proclaimed feminist, diverse, you know, all of that shows still make fat jokes. So I think the important thing is, and this, I don't know if this is, in, this is probably the opposite of a happy ending. <laughs> Thanks for that. I think what's really, <laughs> what I think, and I think it's, I don't, it makes me happy for some weird reason to have made this link, which is uh, this whole obsession with health, or in general, this whole obsession with everyone needing to look the same mm. was very much, uh, I know I'm doing the opposite of what you told me, it's very much <laughs> uh, fascism. That's what Hitler did. That's what Hitler wanted. He wanted us all to look the same. Uh, so we need to acknowledge that there's a very, very dangerous link between fat phobia and ableism, which is basically this idea that no one could be unhealthy. Some people are just sick. Some people just have uh, permanently sick bodies, chronically ill bodies, and that's also okay. They're allowed to have that, you know. They still deserve respect and stuff. So this idea is very, very connected to fascism. And I think the more the left needs to understand that saying a tiny thing like, you have such a pretty face, or don't say that about yourself or, you know, using fat as a bad thing or making fat jokes. People who are meant to be on our side, people who are meant to be feminist and all these things are actually dancing a, a very horrible dance with, with this fascism that's sweeping over Europe. So, but to make it a positive, I do think that's happening. I do think that people are beginning to understand that fat phobia is in the same group of people who, like, we're in the same group of people who needs protection and who needs um, representation and we need the attention as well. It's not just about, oh yeah, but I feel more comfortable when I'm thin. No, screw that. Like, go back into your head and yeah. figure out where all of this hatred yeah. is coming from. And don't tell me to eat yeah. fewer calories than I burn because I will literally <laughs> I will explode the next time someone tells me that. Um, listen, just a couple of things before you go. Uh, they're both about clothes. And the first one is, you know, this fat phobia says, oh, you need to lose weight, you need to exercise. And then you go into the, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in exercise shops trying to get mm. the clothes that will help me go out and exercise. And there's never yeah. any there. And when, and when this story came of the mannequin with the size 16 oh, Nike God. clothes, and then we're told, oh, that's disgusting, don't sell um fat mm. exercise gear to these fat slobs who yeah. don't want to exercise. I mean, it's just such an example of what we're talking about, I think. But also most, most exercise machines, you know, because then you go to the gym and then there's all these stories about people taking pictures of fat people at the gym, putting them online like ha, 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 ha. So then we go, right, where can I then exercise? Oh, at home, I'll buy some exercise equipment. And they all have a, a weight limit that's, <laughs> that's not that high. So you're like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> then you like go for a run and people go, oh, no, no, you shouldn't run. Unless you're, you know, you've trained first because you're too much weight on your knees and stuff. You're like, well, what do you want me to do, actually? Well, I know. And then the other thing, because we are going to end on a happy note, is that you have your own <laughs> new clothes line out. I so know. So tell us about that. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird because it was one of the, I mean, surprisingly, it was actually one of the, the things I was bullied with the most uh, was my fashion sense, not even the fat thing, which just goes to show how bad it was. <laughs> Um, so I've never, ever, ever been a fashionable person. But then, so it's, every fat person will know how hard it is to find clothes. It's really, really difficult. We can basically only do it online. And everything and has flowers on. Everything has flowers it's all on. It's black and has flowers on. It's black with flowers <laughs> and it's baggy. And it's, I mean, you know, you get the dresses. There's loads of flowery dresses, not that many trousers, and then almost no jumpsuits. Jumpsuits is very much a thing that kind of makes out your stomach and your body. 
And I love jumpsuits. It's all I ever wear. I love jumpsuits. But I have never I have, worn a jumpsuit, Sophie. And it's because oh I'm not skinny. That's why I've thought I can you never wear jumpsuits. You have to. It is so comfortable. It's like you're back to being a baby and wearing like one of those little baby. <laughs> oh, it's so I love the sound of that. Yeah, that sounds good. It's so com- It's horrible when you need to pee because it'll take <laughs> you five years to get out of it. But so but what I wanted was I want like a colorful jumpsuit. I want colors. I love I've always loved colors. I want a colorful jumpsuit that doesn't have like a weird zipper in the back that makes it hard to get out of. I want to just be able to just jump out of it. I want it to be comfortable. I want it to be colorful. And so I, and I knew about this brand called Plus Equals, which is inc- it's the only size inclusive brand. A lot of, you know, a lot of brands go, oh, we have all sizes. And then you check and they have up to like 24. So you're like, oh no. Mm-hmm. So, but they custom make clothes to people who are, they have up to a size 42. And if you're bigger than that, you just have to send in your measurements and wow. they just make it for you, which is incredible. And I also don't think it comes under a size 16, which makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> so I messed with the, there's a one woman, a, a fat woman who lives in Brighton in, in the UK who, uh, who makes it, hands sews everything. So I contacted her and I was like, please just make me a jumpsuit. I just want a red jumpsuit. Can you get, make me a red jumpsuit? And we started talking and... But then I got the red jumpsuit and it was incredible. And I thought, other people are going to want this. So many people are going to say to me, where'd you get that jumpsuit? Because they already do with everything I wear because no one knows where to find clothes. And then we just started talking and now it's a line. Like now you can buy the clothes I've, I feel weird about saying designed, but oh, <laughs> I guess yeah. that's basically what I have done. Who would have um, thought that you, such a fashion disaster, would end up being like a designer? It's ridiculous. I know. I mean, there's still a lot of people on Twitter who do, do not like the designs, and I'm absolutely okay with that. Um, <laughs> it's just colorful. There's yellow and purple jumpsuits. There's blue and pink. There's uh, red and purple. It's, they're so pretty and oh. so colorful. And yeah, now you can actually buy them. Yeah. Listen, I'm, I've been really loved talking to you, Sophie. I just want to tell people the book is called Happy Fat, Taking Up Space in a World That Wants to Shrink You. And again, to thank you for everything you're doing, because I do think you're making the world a better place with this. Thank you. And hopefully, you know, things are going to change. Let's try and end on a happy note. Yeah, um, no, I don't think they will. And maybe you'll come in and see us and talk some more about clothes and, and things like that when, you, when you're in Dublin in July. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, thanks very much, Sophie Hagen. (laughs) Thank you so much. Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. Crime pays. Well, it does if you are a successful crime author like our next guest, Jane Casey, who is the Irish-born author of a number of crime novels. She's from Castleknock in Dublin. She studied English at Oxford. Her first book, The Missing, was published by Ebury Press in 2010 and it was shortlisted for the Ireland AM Crime Fiction Award. And then she began a series of novels featuring Detective Constable Maeve Kerrigan. She has written for young adults, but her latest book for grown-ups who like reading about gruesome murders is called Cruel Acts. And she came in to talk to me about writing fiction, leaving Ireland and how Agatha Christie fueled her early love of all things criminal. Jane, another Maeve Kerrigan. Tell us about it. Lots of dead bodies, as is your, you know, forte. I know. I think when I run out of inspiration, I throw in a dead body to see what will happen next. No, um, this one is, uh, it's the eighth in the Maeve Kerrigan series. It's still quite a good place to start, I think, with the series because it kind of introduces the characters again. Um, 
It is about a man who is convicted of murdering two women. And then because the jury have looked him up on the Internet before they finish their deliberations, the conviction is set aside. So there's going to be a new trial. So they're looking for new evidence. Um, and what they find is uh, a lot more bodies. <laughs> OK, women's bodies. They are women's bodies, yes. Do you have any issue with that? Because we had Karen Slaughter in here recently and she was talking about the, her democratic approach to dead people. Like she chose in a woman and a man and whatever. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't have that thing. Some people are saying, oh, I'm sick of reading about dead women or watching violence against women on TV. What's your own take on that? Um, slightly controversially, maybe. I think there's kind of a privilege in saying, I don't want to think about this and I don't want to look about look at this and I don't want to see this happening or... Be aware of this happening. Um, I think as long as it's done in a respectful way, then you know, and it's not gratuitous, then I think you can look at what happens to women. Um, and it does happen to women. This is not something that is kind of extraordinary or unusual or, you know, it's frighteningly commonplace that women are murdered. So I like to sort of look at that and look at what happens around that and to give the victims some sort of personality so they're not just bodies on a slab. They are people who've had their lives cut short. And I think because um, the books are written from the perspective of a young female detective, she has a very strong sense of this could be me or this is this was a person, this was somebody who, who lived and now I have to give them justice. Um, so it comes from that, that perspective. I think... Um, I, you know, I, I'm very sympathetic to the fact that people feel overburdened by this and they would love it to just all go away. But um, I, I just feel, you know, there are a lot of people and I'm, I'm not sort of saying it's not it's not men as a as a homogenous group, but men in general don't have to think about these things. And I see lots of women having conversations about it. And I see lots of women having very intense and very open and exposing conversations about it. And how they feel about fear, the fear of crime. And sometimes you have to sneak it into entertainment so that people will actually look at it and understand it. If we'd have looked at you growing up as a little girl, would we have ever imagined that you'd end up doing all this writing about these grisly murders? I mean, it's possible. Like, <laughs> I was, Were you dissecting <laughs> things in the garden? That I, kind of thing? Not quite. I never get my hands dirty. Okay. Um, no, I was a, a fairly dark child, I think. Um, and I was always really interested. Like I, the first, this is classic crime writer territory, but the first author I ever read who was an adult author was Agatha Christie. And I read through the Agatha Christie novels that were in the house and moved on kind of seamlessly from that to Thomas Harris, which is... Very hardcore and very sort of, um, it was a real fashion for kind of quite gruesome serial killer novels when I was in my teens. And I obviously inhaled those and then exhaled and moved on. Um, but no, I, it was always something that had kind of sat in my imagination. And going back to Maeve Kerrigan, this is your central character. She's the sergeant. She's an Irish woman living in England. And that is very much a theme too. And you are an Irish woman living in England and married to a criminal lawyer as That's well, right, which I'm yeah. sure is very inspiring in certain storylines and things. It can be. He's very <laughs> useful. If I say to him, could this happen? He's very good at saying, well, Yes, it could happen this way. So that there's kind of you have to make people believe what you're writing. So the minute they think, well, that would never happen that way, then you've lost them. So it's quite nice to have him as kind of the scaffolding around what I build. 
You've two sons and you were living in London now, but you did try coming back to Ireland, which was a bit of a, I think you described it as a catastrophe, which I, I like <laughs> the fact that you didn't, you know, brush it under the carpet. It, it didn't go well. You tried to come back to move home with your English husband who was commuting back to London, which is obviously um, hard to do. Tell us about that experience of trying to make Ireland your home again after a number of years. Well, I mean, it just didn't work. That was the first thing. I, I was looking at... Um, a beautiful photograph of Dublin on Twitter the other day and I had this feeling and I thought, what is this feeling? And it was the feeling that you get when you look at a picture of somebody that you went out with (laughs) and it went horribly wrong, but you still love them anyway. And you know they're not good for you, but you still can't help feeling that there's something there. Um, It just, it was the wrong time and we were trying to do it in a hurry. I think, I hate to use the B word, but Brexit was pushing us to make that decision. And, and it was to quite move. big because you sold your house in London, you bought a house in Dublin. And this wasn't just a let's try it out. That was this was a big uprooting. No, this was like this is the culmination of something that I had wanted to do for many years. Um and for it to not work, like it really didn't work. There was nothing that I could say, well, but we've got this or that. Um so it just ended up being better for us to go back. And I think you know, Dublin isn't going anywhere. I know so much more about what I need to have in place before and I come back. what was it that didn't work? I think um, the culture of Dublin is quite hard to break into when you're coming back after a long time. Like Irish people are very warm and very friendly and they have their own circle of friends. And I think if you're working in Dublin and you're in a kind of an office environment and meeting people, that's one thing. But I was working from home. Um, I was dealing with my children. I wasn't really, I I was just lonely. Um, And we just didn't have the right sort of support system in place. It just became very, very difficult. Um, And I found it, like I I really did get to a point where I thought I can't do this anymore. Um, And I just remember my husband came back on, it was the 19th of April, and he came in from the airport and he just looked at me and he said, I'm booking flights. And on the 23rd of April, we were back in London and we just kind of fled and just left everything because I was just at the point where I couldn't do it any longer. So you did you buy another house then in London? We're, still, we're kind of camping. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Everything's still a bit up in the air, but I kind of like that. But you're happy because all the other things that you needed, the supports and the friendship circles and the knowledge of the schools and the boys are happy I presume because I presume they came over with their little English accents they did and actually one of them was absolutely fine the younger one was fine the older one really really struggled with it and didn't complain about it and it was only when we went back that I kind of realised how unhappy he had been which is obviously devastating for a parent like you just you want your children to be happy how many books do you have now? (sighs) I've I think I've written 14. That's amazing. Um, And you got a big deal for the last, for this series. This is the last one. Is that right? It's not the final one in the series. you've got another one. There's another one coming. And then I think there'll be a standalone and then we'll see. Okay. Um, Is this a weird time for you then? Because, you know, you get a publishing deal for six books, was it? It was was actually three books. Three books. Okay. And they're they're going to be done. And then does it feel a little bit nerve wracking or are you kind of happy enough? You've you've established yourself so well. They sell really well. They're so well received. I, I mean, you're always you're I think you're only as good as your last book or your next book, even like what I'm working on at the moment will be coming out in 2021. So I'm kind of focused on that. Other people are thinking about the book that I wrote two years ago. So it's kind of you're you're sort of halfway between one thing and another a lot of the time. But um, yeah, I mean, you just have to keep trying to write as well as you can and try and better yourself like whatever you did last time. 
that's fine, but that's done now. Mm. So you start again every time. And crime is your thing, clearly. There's a lot of snobbery about it, like as there is with popular fiction and other genres as well. Any kind of genre writing is kind of, uh, can be dismissed, which is really ridiculous because there's good and bad writers in every genre, including literary fiction. There's some really crap literary fiction as well. I'm glad we you don't, said it. Well, which we don't, <laughs> we don't hear about it as much, you know, and it's, it's, it's like this idea that everything that's written in the literary genre is amazing, which is just not true. Um, I, th- what, I think it's because pe- we tend to think if we read something literary and we don't like it, the fault is with us because we didn't understand it. Um, and actually, I don't think that's what reading is about. Like, you shouldn't be challenging yourself to like something. Either it hits a chord with you or it doesn't. Um, so tell me about crime in that way, because there's this thing that, oh, people do it because there's money in it or because it's popular or, you know. I mean, it's nice to be read. That's that's really important. Like, I think writing and no one hearing what you're saying is, is the hardest thing. So I kind of respect the writers who don't pay any attention to whether anyone's going to want to read it in the end and just follow their artistic dream. But that is not me. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I think we're a little bit kind of um, hard on crime writers, really. And crime is so important to us in life, like how society operates and and the kind of crimes that hit the headlines and that really cause us to question who we are and what we value. Um, Like that to me is such an essential part of life and something that we're all concerned with. And I think sometimes these issues get explored in crime fiction a long time before they percolate through to literary fiction. So you'll get a very, um, you get a snapshot of what society is like at the moment that you are writing that book. I wrote a book a few years ago um, called After the Fire and it's set in a tower block in London that catches fire and it was before Grenfell obviously um, and I look at that book now and I think I wrote it about two years before Grenfell happened um, and I wouldn't write that book now but it was a picture of what was happening two years before Grenfell and if you were writing that book now in the post-Grenfell world you would do it differently so I don't know, there's something quite interesting to me about how we sort of see the world and how that can change so quickly on the basis of one event. Or, you know, I'm I'm thinking about the poor Anna Kriegel and her murder and how the absolutely devastating impact of that across society here. And I suspect that there are writers who are looking at that already and thinking about that and coming to terms with it in a way that maybe means that the rest of us can think about it in a different way as well. Mm. Do you think you'd ever veer off crime or is this, is, have you found your kind of... I mean, path? I just always end up killing people. <laughs> even if I try. Um, I just really love it. I love the fact that you have an answer at the end. I love that you're kind of playing a game with the reader a little bit and they're pitting their wits against you. Um, crime readers are incredibly passionate and really supportive and it's just a great genre to be in. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming in. The book is called Cruel Acts. Um, Maeve Kerrigan is in there and she's a great, formidable, kind of determined character, but quite complex too. She's a lot of different light and shade in her as well as we all do. Um, So the best of luck with the rest of your career. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for on the Women's Podcast. Thanks to my guest, Sophie Hagen. Her book is called Happy Fat. And Jane Casey, her book is called Cruel Acts. And the podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. You can listen to all our episodes and the other great ones from the Irish Times on any of the podcast apps. And if you have a chance, please go to iTunes and give us a review. It really helps. That's it for me. I'm Roisin Ingle, and I'll talk to you next time. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 